You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello folks, welcome along to Attaboy Clarence, lovely to hop back into your ears for another whirl around some classic movies and radio. I've spent the last couple of weeks writing one of these Attaboy shows dedicated to the 80th anniversary of my favourite cartoon of all time, Tom and Jerry. But it got so long and sprawling that it kind of doesn't feel like an Attaboy Clarence episode anymore, so I'll be releasing that one as a bonus show for patrons in March. So if you're signed up at patreon.com slash attaboysecret, then keep your eyes out for that in the next week or so. I have a very fun brace of movies to tell you all about today in the meantime, though. Quickly, I must just give a shout-out to the Cineversary podcast made by the wonderful Eric Martin, and particularly his brilliant recent show all about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's rare to hear such fresh insights into a film that's a 100 years old, but I found myself thoroughly engrossed, and I'm sure you will too. Do go on over and subscribe to the Cineversary podcast. It's a brilliant listen for all you classic movie lovers. Similarly, I must give a shout-out to the Old Hollywood Realness podcast, which is hosted by Philip and Kathleen, and which, again, is one of those shows that picks some brilliant old movies to talk about instead of the usual fare. Do go and check that out. Finally, I bid a fond farewell to my host and producer role on the Talking Pictures TV podcast, which I shepherded to reality during 2019. It was a very fun show to be involved in, and I'm incredibly grateful to Sarah and Noel for having trusted me to make it. Things are incredibly hectic for me right now, and I want to concentrate on making more Attaboy Clarence shows and more Secret History of Hollywood shows. So I've stepped down as Talking Pictures producer and host, and I've handed the reins to Mel Byron, Scott Phipps, and Daniel Reiferscheid, who are already on the job. Their first episode came out last week, and it's a cracker. I will be popping up there from time to time to do a guest review and to make their bonus shows, but I have lots of plans for Attaboy Clarence this year, so I need to concentrate all my time here. I'm all about the time savers. Here's another time saver. Ooh, excellent. It's a quick way to get Heinz ketchup to pour. Just tap the neck of the bottle three times, and here comes red magic. Red magic sounds like prison slang. Here comes red magic made from Heinz aristocrat tomato. Our ketchup goes farther than other kinds. You know it's good. Because it's Heinz. Is there any person keep me dry? That's a question that's been bothering me too. No, sir. Ah, sorry to hear that. You don't do what I do and stay dry. Okay. Oh my god, he's staring at me. <laughs> Money. She hasn't got a guy who's got a diamond mine. 
but she's a welder on the old assembly line. So bless her, sir. A minnie's in the money. A minnie's in the money. That's fine. She's helping Uncle Sam to keep his people free. She's okay. Hooray. A minnie's in the do-re-mi. Thank you, Mr. Benny Goodman. That was Minnie's in the Money. Delightful. So what's more inconvenient than being murdered in a chair, or murdered at the fair, or murdered by a pair, or indeed a rare pair? And imagine being murdered in a chair at a fair in Delaware by the rare pair of Cher and Jesse Ware. Well, luckily, you don't have to, because today we're looking instead at 1940s Murder in the Air, which apparently was such a revolutionary concept that Warner Brothers just had to make a movie about it, even though technically all murders must happen in the air unless they've been committed in the vacuum of space. So anyway, Ronald Reagan's in it. What's the job? A westbound freight loaded with war supplies for the Orient was wrecked last night, about 20 miles west of Albany. Sabotage? Yes. But we're principally interested in the body of a hobo that was found dead in the wreckage. He was wearing a money belt containing $50,000. Little spending money. He must have been king of the hobos. So for those of you who've signed up as co-producers of this show at Patreon, you may remember that in one of the bonus Attaboy shows, I told you about a movie called Code of the Secret Service, which starred Ronald Reagan as the fabulously named... Brass Bancroft. Well, so intoxicating and appealing was Brass Bancroft that they resurrected the shit out of him and brought him back for another adventure. And who could blame them? If I'd thunk up a character called Brass Bancroft, his name's Brass Bancroft, then there's no way he wouldn't be getting a sequel. Two minutes in, and I knew this was going to be the greatest film of all time. You can tell from the news really beginning. Warners are at the top of their newsreel game here. You have newspaper headlines unfurling across scenes of train wrecks, car wrecks, and train wrecks. Not just unfurling either, you have newspaper headlines with spotlights on them, and the spinny kind of newspaper headlines that spin until they stop and you can finally read them, and train wrecks. We love to see it. Hey, Gabby, come on, what's the matter? Oh, I'm worried about my girl. All right, so if you can't keep the date tonight, she'll cry on her mother's shoulder. That's just what I'm worrying about. She hasn't got a mother. Come on. The story begins when the head of the Secret Service, Agent Saxby, played by John Little, tells Agent Brass Bancroft, played by Ronald Reagan, that his mission is to impersonate a dead spy called Steve Swenko so that he can find out what's going on with a deadly weapon called an inertia projector. Come on, give. I'm dying with suspense. Well, it seems the spy ring has designs on the greatest war weapon ever invented, which, by the way, is the exclusive property of Uncle Sam. Yeah, well, what is it? 
The inertia projector. The nervous objector? The inertia projector. It's a device for throwing electrical waves capable of paralyzing alternate and direct currents at their source. You remember that news story that broke some time ago and then was hushed up about the amateur radio operator in Kansas who was stopping automobiles and streetcars and electrical appliances for miles around with some sort of radio beam? Oh, yeah. What about it? Well, a large-scale model of that device has been installed aboard the dirigible. Yes, do be a love and impersonate Steve Swanko. In fact, Brass, take it one step further. When you check in at hotels, be all casual and stuff by abbreviating it from Steve Swanko to Steve Co. You crazy abbreviating government agent named after a copper and zinc alloy. Accept our apologies, Swanko. Or should I say co? We need a man whose talents come so highly recommended. And now you can relax. You are amongst friends. Friends? Boy, some pals. What's the idea of slapping me around? Just taking no chances. The problems begin when Swenko's wife, Hilda, shows up to see her husband, and instead of finding Steve Swenko, her husband, she finds Ronald Reagan, not her husband. But that's okay, because Ronald Reagan takes his shirt off, so that means her marriage is null and void. I guess I had you figured wrong. Would you like me to help you keep up the pretense? Suit yourself. I was just trying to keep my word to a friend. All right. If we're going to pretend, you'll have to move into my apartment. Mister, you're a fool of hesitation. Yes, you may have loved your husband once, but here are my nipples, said the 40th President of the United States of America. My favorite element of murder in the air is that every time Brass Bancroft gets punched or shoved, his soul cries out in the form of a musical sting. What do you want to see Garvey about? Come on, get up. I mean, it was never going to win 1940's Best Picture at the Oscars, but by crikey, it's a barrel of laughs. This is a film that defines the word rollicking. It's great. There are spies and dames and nipples and betrayals, U.S. presidents. I mean, it sounds like Saturday afternoons at Mar-a-Lago. They say words like that away and gadzooks. And I kid you not, the whole spy problem is resolved when our hero shoots down a Zeppelin with a laser gun. I mean, come on. You'd love to see that. I know you would. I love to see it. So do check out 1940's Murder in the Air. Excellent way to pass 55 minutes. Hey, don't you just love it when a movie has a really ambiguous, metaphoric title like The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Insignificance, Moontide, that kind of gubbins? I love an enigma, don't you? I love to look at a movie title and not know what the hell I'm going to get. That's why I love our next film this week with its terribly cryptic, ambiguous title, Midnight at Madame Tussauds. I mean, what's that about? Well, sir, you are really mingling with the mighty at last. <laughs> Heaven knows what you've done to deserve it. Well, that's what I've been wondering. Ah, here is Mr. Jones. Good morning, Mr. Glad. Good morning. I've brought some friends along to usher me in. How do you do, Mr. Kelvin? Good morning, sir. This is Mr. Kelvin. I was as wax in his hands. You were certainly a very patient subject, Sir Clive. I can't imagine Clive being patient with anyone. <laughs> you will follow me, Sir Clive. Your figure is quite ready for inspection. Thank you. You never get a rom-com in a wax museum, do you? And you won't get it here, especially with dialogue like this. I'm afraid you'll have to excuse us. Some of our ladies have not quite finished their morning toilet. As long as they're pretty, we don't mind, do we, Hawk? 
Okay, so what we have here is your classic horror movie setup, right? That's a very famous British explorer called Sir Clive whatever, because the surname doesn't ever really matter. Everyone calls him Sir Clive. Sir Clive has been immortalized in wax at Madame Tussauds. What an honor. Sir Clive goes along, of course, to look at the old wax statue of himself and is pleasantly surprised to find that it looks just like him. Cue a little tour of the actual, real-life Madame Tussauds in 1936 when this film was made, and cue also some rather awkward jokes about the attractiveness of some of the wax ladies. It's breathing. By Jove, that's good. I thought it was alive. Oh, no, sir. Just a little electric motor in the chest. It's a wonderful model, but uh, who is it? The Sleeping Beauty. You know the legend, of course, sir. She marries the man who wakes her with a kiss. Well, Clive, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Me? Uh, huh. Why, this is what I'm waiting for. <laughs> yes, go on, Clive. Be the first man in England to take advantage of a doll for sexual purposes. It never happens, you know. Fret not, it gets very classy after that load of shenanigans. Nurse Cabot. Of course, Clive. They're all popular heroes. That's what embarrasses me. They're all so famous. And so are you. Our catalogue reads, headed the Polo Expedition in 1925, crushed a frontier revolt with a handful of men in 1927, and saved the Mirage's life when a tiger leapt into the elephant powder. Well, he definitely belongs next to Ed Sheeran, then. So anyway, after all the wax museum tour nonsense, we get back to the actual plot, which sees crusty old Sir Clive, whatever his name is, agreeing to spend the night in the Chamber of Horrors in order to win a bet. What a setup! I mean... Who'd want to spend a night in a dark wax museum with loads of lumps of wax that look like murderers and things like that? Well, Sir Clive, obviously. He really must need a hundred quid. I'll bet you a hundred pounds you wouldn't spend the night down here alone. Are you feeling generous today? And so with that tantalising setup dangling before you all like a ravishing carrot in front of a ravenous donkey, the film then inexplicably decides to spend the next section of the film having nothing to do with any of that. Yes, you see, it's obviously far more interesting to follow the exploits of Sir Clive's ward, Carol Cheney, who's being romanced by a bounder who's after her fortune. Supposing Carol had been with me. Oh, Carol, 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 I'm sick of the sound of her. Isn't there any other way of getting money? No. The bounder and his pals decide that they'll have a much better crack at stealing Carol's fortune if they bump off old Sir Clive while he's spending the night at the wax museum. Makes sense, right? So what's the logical thing to do here, do you think? Should we do a horror-type thriller story about an elderly man in a wax museum trying to read a newspaper in the dark while a load of sneaky killers try to kill him? No, that would make far too much sense. I'll tell you what, let's instead spend 51 minutes talking about how we'll kill an old man in a wax museum and then let's spend four minutes actually trying to do that. Yes, folks, I've seen many movies that promise much but fail to deliver, but this one really does take the cake biscuit and indeed every other variety of baked confectionery it's a shame because i was quite up for one of those creepy thrill ride movies and let's face it the possibilities are kind of endless in a wax museum right i mean you could have a killer pretending to be one of the wax figures and the good guys not noticing him standing very still you could have the good guy mistaking a wax figure for a real man and attacking him only to find that he's made a mistake oh the hilarity Incredibly, none of these things happen. Instead, we have a tiny section in which a man is almost killed at a wax museum, but then isn't. In fact, so little of this film takes place at midnight in a wax museum that calling it Midnight at the Wax Museum is kind of like calling Avengers Endgame Funeral on the Porch. 
Matters aren't helped by this guy who pops up every now and then and who sounds like Christopher Walken with a pineapple up his nose. Oh, well, there you've been making a great mistake. Mr. Frome is connected with one of the largest foreign fruit industries. Cast-wise, there are some interesting choices here. Bernard Miles plays a creepy wax modeler. William Hartnell, the first doctor himself, plays a hapless sidekick. Kind of a different role for him. And nice that Adolf Hitler's wax statue gets a guest appearance here three years before his starring role in World War II. As for comic relief, I mean, there are gags, but they kind of fail to connect. Who's there? Follow him. Don't lose sight of him. The whole thing's fishy. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, definitely watch it if you like films that are sensationally missold by their lurid titles. And if long discussions about financial crimes are your thing, then this definitely has that in spades. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to recommend it, as I'm not really sure why it exists. If I were you, I'd stick with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Plus, that one has Lionel at will. Tell you what, though. Seeing as how we're waxing lyrical about wax... Yes, as we're in wax country, it'd be a crime for me not to take this opportunity to sling a wax-related adventure with Basil Rathburn and Nigel Bruce your way. Yes, let's join Holmes and Watson for a grisly little adventure entitled A Murderer in Wax. See you afterwards. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce and the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. Tonight, instead of joining the doctor at his home, we're all meeting here at Camp Roberts in California, where the doctor's going to tell his story before a large audience of G.I.s, and as usual, I'm going to tell my story right now. It's about Petri California Sherry, and I want you to know that Petri Sherry is the best beginning a good meal ever had. Before you sit down to dinner some evening soon, just pour yourself a glass of Petri Sherry. Look at that rich, dark, amber color. Just smell the fragrance of those wonderful grapes. And then taste that Petri Sherry. Mm, is that ever good? And say, if you like your sherry on the dry side, you know, not sweet, then just wait till you taste Petri Pale Dry Sherry. If some of your family like regular sherry and some like pale dry... Don't buy one, buy two. You can't go wrong so long as you buy Petri. P-E-T-R-I. Petri Sherry. And now let's join Dr. Watson and get on with our story. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Well, Doctor, your study seems a little bigger than usual this week. Yes, my boy. I felt that as tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure was rather an exciting one, the men here at Camp Roberts might like me to, to tell it to them in first. I'm sure they will, Doctor. Which particular story have you selected? One that I call The Strange Case of the Murder in Wax. It concerns one of the most sinister mass murderers who ever threatened the peace of London. It was in the summer of 1900, and the city had been rocked by a series of ghastly murders on Hampstead Heath. Hampstead Heath? Yes, Hampstead Heath. That's a large rambling park in the suburbs of London, Mr. Bartell, and noted as a rendezvous for young lovers. It was here that the elusive murderer, knife in hand, was wont to roam at night time, searching for his prey. All of his victims were young girls, and despite the frantic efforts of the police, each murder seemed to be as baffling as the one that preceded it. Finally, of course, as usual, Scotland Yard 
came to Sherlock Holmes for help. It seems almost like yesterday, Mr. Bartell, that Inspector Lestrade stood in our Baker Street rooms, imploring Holmes to handle the case. Mr. Holmes, you've got to help us. I don't mind telling you the yards at the end of its rope. I sympathize with you, Lestrade, but I don't see that there's much that I can do. Only the police can handle the widespread detailed work necessary to this case. The private detective is helpless. Yes, perhaps if you'd come to Mr. Holmes in the first place, Lestrade, he might have helped you. But the murderer hasn't finished yet. There'll be more killings if we don't catch him. You mark my words. Mr. Holmes, please help us, won't you? Before I commit myself, Lestrade, give me the exact chronology of events, will you? All my information on the uh, murders has been derived from the London newspapers, notoriously inaccurate in matters of fact. I can give you all the particulars, sir. I've been on the case right from the beginning. All the murders have taken place on Hampstead Heath at night time, and all the victims have been young women. Who was the first one? A girl by the name of Oakley, a Bessie Oakley. She was a shop girl who worked at Derry and Tom's in Kensington High Street. Three weeks ago, she was out on the east with a young fella by the name of Alfred Smith. From what he told me, it was a moonlight night that night as they sat there out on the east. Come on, Bessie, give us a kiss. <laughs> oh, go on, Fred. Don't be so soppy. I ain't soppy. Come on, Bess. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. Who's this coming towards us? Blooming Prowler. Here, yeah, what you want? Can't you say something? Look how Bessie's got a knife. No, you don't. Devil, you, you, you hit my friend. Keep away from me. Keep away from me, you. And that's all I know, Inspector Lestrade. I never got a good look at him. He caught me on the head, and when I come to, there was poor Bessie with a throat cut. Yeah, that's your story, young fellow, my lad. All right, Sergeant. You can book him on suspicion of murder. Sir George, we shouldn't be walking on the heath. Didn't you read about the murder here two days ago? It's a fine thing. I, I take you out in the moonlight and you talk of murders. Let's talk about us, Violet, darling. It seems to me we should talk about your wife. My wife doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Violet, if I could get a divorce, I... There's someone behind that tree. He's coming towards us. Who are you, sir? What do you... No, you don't. Oh! Inspector Lestrade, she's, she's dead, poor girl, I know, but a scandal can't bring her back. If there's any way to keep my name out of the papers, yeah, I... Yeah, I'm afraid you'll have to take your chances, Sir George. Oh, and Sergeant... Yes, Inspector? Yeah, you can turn that boy loose, we've held for questioning. The man who did this is obviously the same killer. I'm afraid we're going to hear a lot more from him. Light edition evening paper. Hempstead Heath murderer struck for fifth time. Nine girls murdered on Hempstead Heath. Light edition evening paper here. Now, look here, miss. You can't go walking by yourself on the heath. It ain't safe. Uh, thank you, Constable, but, but I'm not frightened. I want to be by myself. I want to think. Well, I can't stop you by law, I suppose, but you shouldn't do it. Yeah. I don't know how to handle these modern young things, and that's a fact. Inspector Lestrade, he must have killed her the moment she got out of my sight. I searched the old ruddy Eve, but I couldn't find the murderer. But I did startle him. He left his knife in the body. Good, Jackson. Uh, the body's uh, not been identified yet, eh? No, Inspector. 
Uh, we'll print her photograph in all the papers. We've got to find out who she is. Mr. Bishop, is the, this the uh, body of your missing daughter? Yes. It's Rosie, my Rose. Inspector Lestrade, if I ever lay my hands on that murdering fiend, I'll kill him. I'll kill him with my bare hand. Here's the story, Mr. Holmes. Rose Bishop was the tenth and last girl murdered. But she was the first girl murdered when she was alone, Mr. Lestrade? Yes, sir. You found no clues? Well, none that proved anything when we checked on them. Let me ask you a question or two, Lestrade. Well, anything you like, sir. You've taken the obvious precautions, of course. Well, how do you mean, sir? You posted a heavy police guard on the heath? Well, yes, sir. We've had a hundred plainclothesmen walking there at night ever since the second murder. But he, he seems to slip through our fingers. I suppose you've also posted policemen dressed in women's clothes. Yes, Mr. Holmes. And we've hired girls to walk the heath in couples with our plainclothesmen. But the murderer won't seem to rise to our bait. Oh, he's a cunning brute. Yes, he is, Watson. Obviously a morbid madman obsessed by a hatred of love. He'll be hard to catch. Mr. Tard, you mentioned clues that amounted to nothing when you checked them. What were these clues? Well, uh, footprints, a couple of cigarette butts dropped at the scene of the crime. Nothing that helped us. The only important clue was the knife we found in the body of Rose Bishop, uh, the uh, last girl murdered. Because the experts at the yard examined it. Yes, sir. Didn't tell us a thing, though. You got the knife with you? <laughs> Here it is, Mr. Holmes. I knew you wouldn't trust us. <laughs> You'd want to look at it yourself. <laughs> Thank you, Lestrade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What is it, Holmes? Huh? This knife is a collector's item. It's at least a hundred years old, I should say. May I keep this overnight, Lestrade? I should like to conduct a few experiments of my own. Why, of course you can, sir. Then you're going to take on the case, Holmes? Now, let us say that I'll take it under advisement. I'll do my best, Lestrade. I'll do my best. Well, thank you, sir. If any further developments occur, communicate with me at once, will you? Yes, sir. In the meanwhile, I'll smoke a few pipes on the problem. But I promise nothing, my dear fellow. I promise absolutely nothing. Still peering through your microscope at that knife, Lestrade. That's true, old chap. That's quite true. I must be a very dull companion. Why don't you go to bed? Oh, because I'm afraid I may miss something. Confound it. Have you discovered anything? Yes, I think so. Oh, what? The handle of this knife is corrugated. On the underside, I observed a slight diffusion in the markings. Under the penetrating eye of the microscope, I found a minute deposit which had caused the diffusion. I have just analyzed that deposit. It's wax. Colored wax. Colored wax? Well, what does that signify? Oh, by itself, very little. But when you combine it with a knife that definitely belongs to another century, it does suggest a certain origin. I've got an idea. Perhaps it came from the theater. An 18th century dagger could belong in a period play. And the colored wax might easily be part of an actor's maker. Oh, an excellent deduction, Watson. Oh, thanks, Robert. <laughs> However, my own theory would be that this dagger came from a waxworks exhibition. Oh, wrong again. Putty is used in theatrical disguises, but I don't recall the use of colored wax. Whereas it is used in making wax and effigies, and of course the dagger would belong as part of the costume. Precisely, my dear fellow. It's a long chance, but uh, I think in the morning we'll make a tour of the various London waxworks exhibitions. 
If my deduction is a false one, at least we'll have the pleasure of a busman's holiday. We can visit all our old friends who died on the gallows. Old chap? Uh, I must say I'm a little weary. This is the fourth waxworks exhibition that we've been to. The fourth and the last. We fail to find any clues here at the Vex Museum. We can return to Big Street. Oh, thank heaven. This is our last port of call. I'm so dizzy from looking at waxworks that they begin to look like human beings to me. <laughs> Did you notice that I asked directions from the wax policeman at the entrance door to stop? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure many people have been uh, deceived in the same way. Uh-huh. Here we are. Oh, Monsieur Levesque doesn't believe in understatement, does he? Look, look at that sign oh, there. Oh, gracious me. The Chamber of Horrors. Come in and see the pageant of murder. All the great killers of history reenacting their famous crimes. Well, <laughs> let's go in, Watson. We should feel thoroughly at home. Creepy in here, isn't it? I've heard that Monsieur Levesque will pay a hundred pounds to anyone who will spend all night alone in the Chamber of Horrors. Yes, I've heard of that challenge, too. Are you thinking of accepting the bet? Great Scott, no, I wouldn't spend a night here for a thousand. A very comprehensive collection of killers, aren't they? Let's see, Williams, Wainwright, ah, uh, the Marchioness de Brinvilliers. By George, yes. She was an attractive woman, wasn't she? As trim a pair of ankles as ever I've seen. Yes, but you wouldn't have liked her cooking, Watson. She used the most lethal condiments of almost any woman in history. Hello. What is it? Look over there. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering when we'd come to one of your cases. Dr. Grimsby Rylett and the murder at Stoke Moran. Or the case of the Speckled Band. By Joe Holmes. The tableau's extraordinarily realistic, isn't it? Yes. One of my other old friends of mine are represented here rather liked to renew acquaintance with Ricoletti of the Clubfoot and his abominable wife. Ricoletti? I don't remember him, Holmes. Oh, one of my earlier cases, old fellow. I must tell you that story sometime. I wish you would, Arbuff. Holmes, look, that veiled figure over there. Read the placard in front of it. The Hampstead Heath murderer. Well, how very interesting. The face is covered with a black veil. Is this pure showmanship, I wonder, or does Monsieur Levesque know more than Scotland Yard and I? Good day to you, gentlemen. Great Scott, you, you startled me, sir. Are you admiring my collection of murderers? Monsieur Levesque? Yes, sir. And haven't I the distinction of addressing Mr. Sherlock Holmes? That is my name, and this is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do? How do you do, Doctor? I am greatly honored to meet you both. What do you think of my chamber of horrors? Oh, it's very impressive. We're particularly interested in this veiled figure of the Hampstead Heath murderer. Yes, indeed we are, sir. Is there a face behind, beneath that, that veil? <laughs> I'll let you in on a trade secret, gentlemen. There are no recognizable features behind that veil. This is purely for publicity purposes. The public always expects to see the latest horrors here. And I, I thought I'd titillate their morbid palates by, by having a mysterious figure representing the killer. Of course, if he is captured, I shall add his effigy to my collection. You think he will be captured, then? One can only speculate. He's a clever man, Mr. Holmes. By the way, Monsieur Lebec. Does your offer of a hundred pounds to anyone who will spend a night in the Chamber of Horrors still hold good? Oh, yes. Are you thinking of accepting the bet, Mr. Holmes? Uh, no, but Dr. Watson would like to. I don't recommend the experience, Doctor. It's an ordeal that calls for nerves of steel. However, I shall be glad to arrange for it. Oh, I haven't the slightest intention of... backing down now? Of course you haven't, old fellow. What time shall my friend return, sir? About 11.30 tonight. 
I'll be waiting for him at the main entrance. Splendid. Come on, Watson. Oh, Holmes, I told Good day, you. Monsieur Lebeck. Good day, gentlemen. I shall be waiting for you tonight, Doctor. Holmes, what the blazes do you think you're doing? I haven't the slightest intention of keeping that appointment tonight. Well, of course you haven't. I shall keep it. Disguised as you. You keep it? For heaven's sake, tell me what you're up to, Holmes. You didn't even mention that missing dagger to Lebeck. No, because he knows something about the murderer. I'm convinced of it. Well, why'd you say that? As we were standing there talking to him, a breath of air from the open window blew back a corner of the veil. I'll swear that there are clearly defined features beneath it. And so you're going back there tonight to find out. That's right, old fellow. The superstitious used to believe they could use a waxen image to kill a man. Tonight, Watson, we shall prove that a waxen image can be used to trap a killer. <laughs> Dr. Watson will continue his story in just a second, so I'm just going to remind you that there are lots of ways to make good food taste better. But the easiest way is to serve that food with a good wine, a Petri wine. If you like a white wine with chicken or with fish, you'll love that wonderful Petri California Sauterne. If you like a red wine, then rich, hearty Petri California Burgundy is your wine. But if you don't know which you prefer... Why not try them both? Petri Burgundy and Petri Sauterne. Red and white. Don't buy one, buy two. But always buy Petri. Well, Doctor, so Sherlock Holmes decided to disguise himself as you and spend the night in the Chamber of Horrors, yes, huh? Yes, that's right, Mr. Bertell. After dinner that night, he began to apply the makeup. Some tanning to sit there in Baker Street and watch Holmes slowly turning into a very convincing replica of myself. As he did so, we discussed last-minute arrangements. I'm here at 11.30, Watson. If I'm not back here by 2 o'clock, you'd better come out to well, me. Well, Mr. can't wait outside, old fellow, just in case there's any trouble. No, 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 no. You'd attract attention. By the way, um, do you recall the name of the last girl murdered on the heath? Yes. Bishop. Uh, Rose Bishop, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. The only girl who was murdered when she was unescorted. The body was identified by her father. Well, what of it, Holmes? Levesque is a French name, and yet the gentleman had a decidedly English accent. I should say that uh, he adopted a foreign name as being more suited to his profession. I don't see what you're driving at. What's the connection between Levesque, the owner of the waxworks, and the father of Rose Bishop, the murdered girl? Levesque is the French word for bishop. Great Scott. You think that he knows who the murderer is and... Uh... I know only one thing, Watson. I may see what is beneath that black veil. Yeah. Now, how's my disguise? <laughs> Wonderful. You look exactly like me, but how do you manage about the voice? Well, well don't think that'll be too difficult, old man. I'm for the well. I can't understand half what you're saying. In your own case, old chap, that's a handicap that I've suffered from for years. Rubbish. I'm perfectly intelligent. Now, let me see. The uh, bullseye lantern. Yes. Uh, Watson, I think I'll borrow your revolver, too. I probably won't need it, but um, for once, I think it might be safer for me to go armed. Here, Holmes, now... Do be careful. I will, old chap. Don't worry. Goodbye. And if I'm not back by two o'clock, you better come to the waxworks and see what's happened to me. Uh, Dr. Watson, you don't mind if I search you? Oh, gracious, no. Well, of course not. Uh, no, no lantern, please. The moonlight will give you all the illumination that you need. Oh, dear me. A revolver in your pocket. 
Mm. I'm afraid I can't allow that. Oh, no. Once before, a young man who unwisely accepted my bet left bullet holes in some of my finest waxworks before he finally went raving mad. Worst me raving mad, did he? Oh, oh, here. Uh, don't be frightened, Dr. Watson. Many of the waxwork murderers here are all friends of yours. Uh, they'll be good company. I shall come and release you at eight in the morning. Yes, but no, no, no. How many of those? I've sealed all the windows with string and wax. I shall seal the door behind me as I leave. Oh, that's very unkind of you. Yeah, midnight. Oh. The bed is on, Doctor. You still wish to go through with well, it? I suppose so. Very well, then. I shall leave you now. Oh. Uh, good night, Dr. Watson. Good night. Pleasant dreams. Pleasant dreams, all the Seals in the string. Up with it. Uh, Holmes. Holmes, you all right? Shh. Yes, I'm all right. You came early. But it's just as well. You're carrying a lantern. The vet took mine with him. Come on in. Uh, oh. Shh. Uh, there we are. Come on, quiet. I'm glad to see you, Watson. But uh, what made you decide to come here so early? After you left the start, came to Baker Street. He told me there was another murder on the heath at another, 7 o'clock tonight. Another murder, eh? I started worrying about you, Holmes. Mm. I had a premonition of impending danger, and I decided to come over here. You're, you're not angry with me? Oh, of course not, my dear fellow. I'm glad of your company, and I appreciate your concern. Have you looked under the veil of the waxwork figure of the Hampstead Heath murderer yet? No, I was just about to. Your lantern will be most useful. Come on, Watson. Oh, what have you been doing? Just to... Just doing nothing? Yes, yes. I, I wanted to give Lefecht an impression that I was here for the night, and I also wanted to do some serious thinking. I smoked two pipes on the problem, Watson, and I think I know the answer now. I'm willing to swear you'll know the face you see when I lift the veil from the waxen dummy. Here's the figure. Now, hold your lantern a little higher, will you, will you? That's it. I lift the veil, and who do we see? Good Lord, it's the waxwork figure of Lefecht himself. Precisely, Watson. An unparalleled example of the self-betrayal inherent in criminal egotism. Levesque couldn't resist the... Holmes! The waxwork is moving! Great Scott, it's alive! Yes, gentlemen. Which is more than either of you will be in a few minutes. You've re-entered this room by a secret door, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. And since you've displayed such a flattering interest in the Hampstead Heath murderer, I decided to remove the wax figure and appear in person. Look out, Holmes, you've got a revolver. Oh, no, 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 Doctor. This isn't a revolver in my pocket. What would the Hampstead Heath murderer want with a revolver? This is a knife. I feel so much more at home with a knife. There are two of us, Lebeck. Remember that. And both unarmed. Which one of you meddlers wants to die first? Look out, Holmes! Watch it, watch it, together! The lantern smashed. Yes, and the moon's fading. What a pity. Holmes! Holmes, where are you? Over here by the effigy of Macbeth. How very thoughtful of you to provide him with a dagger, Levesque. A wooden one, my dear Holmes. <laughs> you can't escape me. I can feel my way in the dark here. I know every inch of this room. You're doomed, both of you. Don't suck a match, Holmes. You'll make a target of yourself. The devil with that. I'm lighting this newspaper. It'll make an excellent torch to set light to the nearest waxwork. No, no! Don't burn my waxwork! Why not? 
Wax on a wooden frame that blaze brilliantly. There we are. Oh, oh, you devil! You're destroying my life's work! Holmes, that burning wax is pouring all over the floor. The curtains are catching light. The whole place will burn down. Oh, my beautiful museum! Ah, I thought this would smoke you out. Quick, watch him again. What's that knife, Holmes? Mr. Holmes, you've done it again. You've solved the case in a blaze of glory. <laughs> get the point, sir. <laughs> a blaze of glory. Yes, Mr. Stroud, I get the point. Thank you very much. Pass that marmalade, will you, Watson? Uh, uh, Holmes, is that the morning paper you brought with you, Lestrade? Yes, Doctor. Uh, want me to uh, read you the headlines? Yes, yes, please, please do. Uh, Amstead Heath murderer captured in fire that destroys waxwork exhibition. <laughs> You know, Mr. Holmes, you and the doctor were lucky you weren't burned to death. Never mind the chance you ran of having your throat cut by that maniac. It was fortunate that the police and firemen were on the scene as quickly as they were. Levesque had the strength of ten men. Yes, the strength of a madman. He'll never stand trial, of course. No, doctor. You'll end up in an asylum where he belongs. <laughs> Mr. Holmes, what made you suspect Levesque? You first gave me the clue yourself, Lestrade. You uh, told me that all the murdered girls were accompanied by men when they were attacked. All of them save one, Rose Bishop. Therefore, if the murderer was venting a hatred of love, he had to uh, get to be someone very close to Rose Bishop to know that she was a suitable victim. That point alone, which I was shockingly slow in observing, should have told us to focus our attention on the father, Mr. Bishop, alias Levesque. Well, your theory was certainly right, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> you should have heard his ravings after the arrest. He swore his daughter had been ruined, and so he'd killed her, too. Holmes, the, the waxwork figure of the killer, the one with a veil over its face, the features underneath were those of the of Levesque himself, weren't they? I'm certain of it, old fellow. You see, he had two great prides. The first, his natural pride as a fine craftsman in wax. The second, his perverted pride as a prominent and successful murderer. These two prides combined suggested to his crazed mind... He make a waxwork figure of himself and range it with the other great killers of history. Yes, but he was cunning enough to protect himself by placing a veil over the Precisely, face. Precisely, my dear fellow. And when he saw us yesterday and we accepted the wager, he undoubtedly became suspicious and removed the wax figure last night and made his personal appearance as the murderer with every intention of killing us both. Yes, we were very lucky, old chap. Yeah, if you ask me, Mr. Holmes, you've been very smart. Oh, I quite agree, Lestrade. I think you solved the case brilliantly, no, Holmes. No, 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 no. I've been very sluggish. I solved by circumstance and melodrama what should have been a purely intellectual problem. I'm not pleased with myself. Lestrade, I hope that my name has not been used in that newspaper report. No, it hasn't, sir. Excellent. I want no credit in this case. Oh, do you mean to say that you're going to let Scotland Yard get the praise for catching him, Holmes? Why not? Well, that's very generous of you, Mr. Holmes, It'll make things a lot easier for me. Yes, it certainly will. Holmes, uh, I can't see why you reproach yourself. Because, my dear Watson, like the Hampstead Heath murderer, I too have my pride as a craftsman. This case had a clearly defined pattern and I was unable to recognize it. If you should have occasion to chronicle this story, Watson, and I should prefer that you didn't, I, I would like you to entitle it The Education of an Idiot. Oh, come now, Holmes. The Education of an Idiot? <laughs> That's absurd. I know. But um, if you do tell this story, it'll probably end up as um, a strange case of the murderer in wax.
And that was Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in A Murderer in Wax. <laughs> so good to hear from those guys again. I really must play more Sherlock Holmes radio plays. Okay, that is it for me for this week. Remember that if you like this show, if you want more, then you can sign up at patreon.com slash attaboysecret and get over 60 bonus editions of this show. They're there waiting for you right now. You can also join me for our monthly film club night. You can also hear the Tom and Jerry Spectacular, which is coming later this week. And you'll be credited as a co-producer of this show. And you'll be helping to make this show get made, for which I am eternally grateful. Bless your soul. Go to patreon.com slash attaboysecret. Only takes a moment, and I will see you there. For more details, listen on to the end of this show. Until next time then, folks. Take such dreadfully good care of yourselves. Avoid those wax museums like the plague. <laughs> Bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books, and every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you.